All right, well, welcome to the ninth session of our church history class. This is our third uh, in-house session. Uh, Tonight's going to be a little different than the other two in-house sessions in that we want to hear a lot from you. Um, I'm just going to do a couple of housekeeping notes, then pray, and then I'll turn it over to Neil to get us going tonight. Um, A few weeks ago, I was in Boone and had lunch with Michael's pastor, the pastor of the church where my son Michael uh, serves on staff. And Scott Andrews, I, I told Scott that we were doing a church history class. Now, they are a church of about a thousand people. And he said, he said, I did a church history class here. And, you know, I'm thinking how immediately how blessed I am. This is really Neil's class. It was my vision a long time ago. Neil's doing all the work, and I just get to come in and say, well, yes, I know this and that. Actually, tonight, I'm going to be saying, take it away, Neil. Uh, And here's the reason for a lot of that. Uh, Scott said, we started with about 50 people. I said, so did we. And he said, and I just got lost. He said, we just got lost in the trees. And it's easy to do that. It is, at times, it feels like an avalanche of material. And we are probably at the place where there are more names, more ideas, more things to think about thrown at you than any other part of this entire class. And so, truly, I was all prepared for this, and I spent so much time preparing for the 20-minute segment that we filmed a little while ago on Anselm. You'll see this video next week. One of my favorite characters in all of church history uh, that... We started talking about this tonight, and it's like, oh my, I don't remember anything. But I'm sure it will come to me. Whenever there's an opportunity to talk, I will. Two people we want to be praying for tonight, especially Elise Finnerty, um, wrote today and said, I just am not up to it. I'm, I'm just weary, and I'm trying to listen to my body from chemo. And then uh, Barbara Stevens is preparing for surgery next week. Gary made it. Had his son James made it, we would have sing, we would have sung happy birthday to him. His birthday is tomorrow, 22. Okay. So, uh, but we want to pray especially, uh, and Barbara has a cold, a bad cold. Is that correct, Gary? Allison either talked to her or was texting back and forth today. And Allison, who's... Just in the middle of a huge stretch, just exhausted and a lot of stuff given to her today at school that she's got to do tonight. So let's open in prayer because I don't want to talk this whole time. We've got a lot to say and we really want to hear from you. Yes. Yes, Denise Frederick. Okay, uh, November surgery for Denise. All right, so we want to pray for her. Um, And... Uh, so, a number of other people too. Uh, Callie just had to go to the ER yesterday in a terrible procedure. One of her tubes got out of whack and it was very painful and very slow process. Poor little thing. So, let's pray and then Neil will get us started on the shoulders of giants. Father... Tonight, we want to thank you for the rich and deep heritage we have as believers, as members of Grace Community Church, part of the Universal Church, part of Jesus Church. And tonight, as we uh, 
understand more about our heritage. We learn more about our heritage. I pray that you will give us not only an appreciation, but also uh, knowledge of how you expect us to live in this present time. We do want to pray for uh, three of our sisters who have been mentioned tonight, four actually. Uh, Lord, um, we pray for Barbara as she prepares for surgery next week. And with this cold, she needs to get past that. So we pray that you would move her past that very quickly. Uh, For Elise as she recovers from chemo, may your presence comfort and strengthen her tonight. Uh, Denise Frederick as she prepares for surgery. And Lord, the anxiety that can come with these kinds of surgeries. I just pray that you would be with her, well, for all kinds of surgeries. And then, Lord, for little Callie, we pray that you would give grace not only to her, but to all the Moody's. I pray that you would protect all of the physical uh, issues that, that come with, with the disease that she has and the, and the treatment that she's had through the years and that these tubes would... Stay in place, Lord, and these kinds of trips to the emergency room would be limited. So, Lord, we look to you tonight uh, to aid us in our hour of need. And every one of those people that we prayed for tonight, their families, Lord, are are suffering with them, are walking with them, as, as Elise says, they're valley walking. And so we pray for grace for all of them. Uh, Open our minds, our hearts, our eyes tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Brad. Um, uh, Just like you said, we're going to move right into this. Uh, For those who aren't able, believe it or not, you're not the only ones listening to this. Uh, Those who can't make it tonight will either watch or listen online. And because of that, I'm going to ask you if you have a question or comment, uh, try extra hard to wait until a microphone will get around to you so that... Your question or comment is captured on audio for, for others who listen in later. They can hear your response as well. Okay, um, before we jump into the material, we want to go ahead and look at our goals. Uh, if anybody looks at the slideshow online each week, you'll notice that this is one of the first slides that you get to. And um, familiarity can breed contempt sometimes, or at least you can just sort of skip over it. But we don't want to forget the lessons that we want to learn from church history. We don't want to learn it just for the sake of filling our brain. Um, But these things should move us into a closer relationship with Christ, um, better discernment skills. And uh, so we like to hit each of these points each week. And this is what we're going to do with the two topics that we're going to discuss this evening. Uh, First, we're going to do a a little review of the, the medieval period, the Middle Ages. And we're going to look at each of those goals as it uh, relates to the medieval review. And then we're going to move into Celtic Christianity. So again, uh, there are only a couple of you who are on pace with the questions and the reading and so forth. Don't get discouraged. If you're, if you're one of those keeping up, keep up. Uh, keep posting answers and questions and everything online because I think that will encourage more discussion and others to get into it as well. If you're a week or two behind or even more, don't worry about it. Don't get further behind. But don't feel guilty that, um, I mean, this is, is free knowledge, so, so do partake as best you can. So let's jump into medieval review, and for a lot of this, I'm going to ask for your participation. These points are not points for me to talk about. These are for you 
to tell us to record uh, what are some of the main points in the time period. When we talk about the medieval age or the middle or dark ages, roughly what time period are we talking about? 450 to 1,000? That's the first part of it. That is referred to as the early Middle Ages. Uh, does anybody remember uh, how many segments we've divided the Middle Ages into? That would be three. Three, yep. There's the early, which is roughly about 500 to 1,000, and then and, what's that? And Trudy, you've got the mic. Uh, what's characteristic? Well, that may be really putting you on the spot. I won't do that. <laughs> Anybody, what's characteristic of that first part? It's, it's really where we get the term dark ages. It's, it's especially dark during this period of time. Loss of academics. Yes, loss of academics. We'll, we'll talk. And in fact, next week we begin to turn the corner on, on some of this. And there's not much new in terms of doctrine. Yes, right. Theological, very little theological development. It's one of those beautiful things about Scripture. You never quit learning. And even to this day, there is new theological development. It does not mean we're learning new truth about Scripture, but we're understanding it better, broader. So that second part is from about 1,000 to, say, 1,300. It's the high Middle Ages. This is where the papacy reaches its culmination, its zenith of power. And then afterward, it starts to wane. So then we have the waning Middle Ages um, where we start to see a decline in the power of the church and, and there's an awakening to more scriptural Christianity. Um, when you look at one of our points was to revolve around people, personalities, so just name one or two of the personalities that come to mind when you look at um, points of discussion like Rome's fall or the rise of the papacy and those others that you see there. Just throw out some names. Do you remember who um, was alive when Rome fell um, in the early 5th century? Two, two men who were quite important in the history of the church, one more than another, had totally different reactions. Augustine. Augustine was one of those, and Jerome was the other. Jerome went into deep despair, thinking it's over. Augustine had a completely different view. His response was... The kingdom goes on. kingdom goes on. Remember, there was a book he wrote, The City of God... One of the most important theological works, again, in church history. He had some weird stuff in there. There's a lot, little anecdotes about church history that probably we won't be telling. <laughs> You'll have to figure them out on your own. But, uh, but it was essentially Augustine saying, there's the kingdom of man and then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of man is falling around us as we know it, but the kingdom of God goes on. All right. Any other names that you can think of about these points in history? What about the Holy Roman Empire? Who was the uh, first head of that? Charlemagne. Charlemagne. There's a Gregory somebody out there, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Gregory was um, could possibly qualify as the first pope as we know the popes. 
he took a lot of authority on himself and really pointed toward Rome as being the head church. Um, what about this uh, um, Charlemagne, though? What, what was the significance of Charlemagne that really reshaped the political slash religious landscape? Do you remember anybody? Who crowned Charlemagne? The Pope did. Um, in fact, Charlemagne wasn't real excited about that, but the Pope kind of did it. But, and, and what did that signify? Church and state and the, and, 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 and the order. If the church has the right to, to, to crown the emperor, what does that say? Who's got the power? Yes, I think that's when that song, who got the power? I think that's when that was written uh, back then, but I'm not sure. We'll edit that out. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right, any other names before we move ahead? All right, you see on that list the rise of Islam. So during the middle portion of the early medieval period, we see Islam being established and growing very quickly, probably within... The first century of its existence, it massively expands throughout uh, Asia Minor, Minor uh, North Africa, and reaches into uh, Europe via Spain. And then we have Charles Martel, who held him off at Tours, and um, and and others too. Uh, Byzantine held him off at uh, Constantinople. One so, thing I will say about this is one of the reasons that. Islam was able to spread so rapidly was because Christians were fighting in the area where Muhammad established the religion. Uh, in Egypt, you had these, I, I can never say this, Monophysites uh, who believed that Jesus was one person and one nature. The orthodox view of the Trinity is one nature, three persons. The orthodox view of Jesus is one person, two natures. So that can be fairly confusing to us, but man, it wasn't confusing in those days. Everybody talked about these kinds of things. Everybody talked about them. Farther north, they uh, had trouble. Uh, they, they distinguished so much between the human nature and the, and, and the divine nature that it's almost like two separate people but down south in Egypt they were saying no 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 mysteriously this divine nature and, and human nature kind of interact and so consequently there's all this fighting going on and um, Muhammad has a very easy time because it's a very militaristic um, religion and were there any questions about points of doctrine on Islam, what they believed early or, or now, how they got from Muhammad to this vast expanse of Islam? Muslims believe Abraham's part of God's plan. Jesus is a part of God's plan. Um, they talk about one God. Do we worship the same God as Muslims and why or why not? Who is our God? He's the Trinity. Three and one. Yes. So if you don't worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not the same God. 
Yeah, I find it interesting, too, that in uh, Muslim eschatology, the end times, they think Jesus is coming back also, but that he's going to be a prophet announcing. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. So it's not the same Jesus, not the same role. Yep. Okay, shortly after um, Islam's expanse into Spain was cut short, uh, Charlemagne was crowned emperor of the new Holy Roman Empire. Um, and you can see his expansive empire was not the same as the Roman Empire of earlier days, uh, but that he made many, uh, you say, revamps of both church and state, that as crowned emperor, he thought he was, he was the man for both the church and state, that he was making um, as many changes within the church as he was within society with his laws. It was one of the Leos, right, who crowned Leo the Third, crowned Charlemagne, trying to signify the church's authority. But um, Charlemagne says, "Okay, I'm going to appoint this bishop, this bishop," and so he's trying to take the authority. There's a fight, but eventually these mesh, and the church does come out on top for a while. Okay, and then a couple of other of our goals or themes for the class is to look at theological development, and that's to see how we got from A to B to C in the, the discourse of theologians about particular doctrines. So what were some of the theological developments that we see in, during the Middle Ages? Not much good, was it? Purgatory. Purgatory. Right. It was. Uh, it it all moved in the in the wrong direction. Yeah, purgatory came from speculation to then established tradition. What were some of the other Catholic practices that do you know that came about during these? Um, That was not officially accepted until the, the 13th century, actually, at the Fourth Lateran Council. But the, the thing that's interesting about that, we were just talking about that a little earlier. We don't really have time scheduled for the Fourth Lateran Council, but it met over a three-day period. And you cannot believe all of the stuff that they got accomplished, um, including transubstantiation and just a number of standards for the, which indicates that the there wasn't much debate going on. The, it was basically rubber stamping. The Pope, by this point, said, here's what the church believes. And they said, yeah, we do. I believe that's when the song... No, no more songs. <laughs> what else? What other developments occurred during this time? Uh, relics. Relics became huge. Not only were the, the icons or relics brought into the churches, but it became a, a point of contention between the East and the West, didn't it? Anything else? Along with purgatory is the penance. Penance, yep. that's exactly right. Yep. Everything's sort of related. You, you have baptism, and then you have penance, and if you didn't uh, work it out through penance, then you have purgatory, and indulgences to get out of purgatory. So all these doctrines were linked and continued to progress as a, as the church went through the ages. I think it's kind of interesting that 
the idea of purgatory and indulgences to get people out and saying mass to get people out, etc., sounds a lot like Mormonism praying for the dead mm-hmm. and getting them out of or yeah. baptizing them into heaven because yeah. they didn't do it before. There's not much new, is there? I mean, repackaged. It's all. That's one of the... I, maybe I'm, I'm just thinking out loud here, but heresy is repackaged, but truth is ever expanding. Again, not that we're, we, we're learning different truth, but we're understanding it so much better. I have more of a question that goes with that that I'm still a little bit unsure of. Um, before we got to this era, there was so much focus um, in, with the monastic movement and everything, all these different people really diving into scriptures and seeking mm-hmm. truth. And then all of a sudden, we're in this era where none of these doctrines that are coming out have anything to do with what's written in the Bible. How did they get to that point? What happened where all of a sudden nobody was interested in saying, oh, well, this is an idea. Let's see what the Bible says about it or what the scriptures, the canon that they had at that time. I think first there's a loss of accountability uh, amongst the bishops because uh, with the Goths taking over, uh, the barbarians essentially have taken over. And one of the things that's interesting is that they are converted to Christianity, but they put a stop to the large uh, ecumenical, count, ecumenical councils. Now, we, we, uh, we have those, but not at the same level. There's not the exchange of ideas. A lot of that is sort of um, slowed considerably. And so... Those in authority. And plus, you have most of people looking to the main churches, to the main cities where apostles had been. Those were the cities that begin to take on the the bishops in those cities, begin to take primacy. And then, of course, the big city is Rome. But after Rome is taken, the Byzantine Empire sets up shop in Constantinople and... And so then you have sort of competing churches. The church is not snuffed out in in the West, in Rome, but it is uh, greatly limited. And so Byzantine rises, but then Rome says, now wait a minute, we are the head church. Yeah, and I think to piggyback on that, there I think of two main aspects. And the first one you may remember going back to the the 5th century is uh, Gregory I, where he was the Bishop of Rome, the Pope at that time, who officially elevated church tradition or the church fathers to the same level as Scripture. So if you have two different uh, sources of authority, why spend your time in just one when, what does the bishop say? And you go to, go to what the bishop says, and the bishops, like you said, are, are cut off from one another. And then the second aspect of that is what we'll actually spend some time exploring uh, after a short break, is Celtic Christianity. How did the monasteries or the, the Celtic religion that was very different from Roman Christianity, how did it help to preserve biblical uh, understandings of some of these things versus the tradition of the, of the Roman church? So we'll get into a little bit of that in just a few minutes. I just have a question about, I know that, Early on, 
we were talking about the Catholic Church with the small c, the universal Catholic Church. And now it seems like we're talking more about the Roman Catholic right. Church. We are. And I'm confused as to when that transition actually occurred. The, what Neil just talked about Gregory uh, the first, who was 5th fifth, fifth century, 6th, 400s, began to consolidate authority. Not, he just claimed authority. And not a lot of people, again, there was people just weren't in the position to argue. Think about the lively debates that you had at Nicaea and Constantinople in 381. You're not having these debates. There's still more that are coming uh, all through the centuries, but, but nothing like before. And so Gregory just sort of claims power. And this happens over and over in Rome, and people just sort of cede uh, power to them. But I could, you could say mid to late 5th century, it's beginning to take shape as Catholic with a, with a, with a big C. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why that period is a transition period is because we see less of the councils debating out theology and, and more of um, just churches going to tradition, getting away from the gospel as it's biblically understood. And the, the gospel itself that Augustine would, would have preached uh, of grace and salvation is overshadowed or, or nearly lost through traditions and, and sacralism and a lot of superstition that gets built in. so And there's really no one point where you can say, this is where the Catholic Church was born, or this is when this doctrine became established, because it, it's always morphing and evolving, right. which I think we're seeing throughout the centuries of the, of the Middle Ages. Yes, and the, and the idea of, uh, of transubstantiation that you brought up earlier, Clearly, this the churches move in this way, but it's later before it they finally say, "This is it. This is what we believe." Well, moving away from particular theological developments to the class in general, we want to hear from from you about um, any any particular things that you're learning, any insights that you have, any questions that you have, not just about medieval history, but about church history in general. We want to hear. Good comments as well as questions. Um, anything that has struck you? What have you learned um, about biblical discernment? Um, one thing for me that has been very insightful with this whole course in general um, is just seeing how a lot of the themes that we're facing today in society as a culture. Um, the way the non-Christians view us and the way Christians view the world and all these different stereotypes and things that may not even be true, but all the things that we're facing um, is just a repetition of things that have been faced in the past over and over and over again. And in a lot of ways, it's very encouraging for me. It's like, okay, they've done it before. They've gotten through this. you know. So it's been very insightful. That was going to be my follow-up question is, do we get Sorry. encouragement? <laughs> well, no, do we get encouragement by seeing this? And I think, yes, that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We're not facing anything new, but we have the same sovereign God who has brought the church through similar um, crises in the past, and, and we'll get through this too. How has, um, have you learned about 
Or have, have you been surprised at how much thought and prayer and conversation and discussion goes into determining truth and theology? Um, I, that's, I remember that's one of the first things our my professor said, and we said this too, opening here, is that this is hopefully going to be a feel like a class on the development of historical uh, historical development of theology, how theology developed over the years. But there's a great deal of precision that is required if you're going to be orthodox. In early years as a believer, a lot of times I think we just kind of take for granted certain things and and just spit out particular truths that we have heard without really thinking about them and thinking about how little things that we may be saying may not be accurate. Some of the illustrations that we've used might not be the best. Uh, but when you start looking at how theology was hammered out, you start to see, wow, you know, getting this right is important. None of us are going to get it all the way right. But we want to get it as right as we can. Does anyone else take comfort or encouragement for you yourself that God has used these deeply thought flawed people with some serious hang-ups, but God still uses them to bless the church? Do you, do you can't take comfort in that? I hope so. I'm, I'm nodding. looking around at two or three in particular deeply. <laughs> if I have a mirror, maybe. Welcome back. We're going to jump into Celtic Christianity at the end of this session or at the end of this uh, review, quick historical overview of Celtic Christianity. I want to ask you, what is the most significant thing that you have learned in church history? You don't, not everybody has to answer, obviously, but if we'd love to hear some of those kinds of uh, responses. So let's dive in for a 30,000 foot look at Celtic Christianity. What do we mean by Celtic? Um, that would be the British Isles, right? Everybody from Irish, Scotch, uh, Welsh, British, uh, everybody on those, those islands up there. And how are they different from ordinary Christian? Why, why do they get their own segment of church history class? Well, um, Tertullian actually said, and, and remind me again, this is third century that Tertullian late, was living. I mean, right? early, uh, early, he was late. 100s, early 200s, so 2nd and 3rd centuries. At, at that early stage, he's writing and says that the, the islands that Rome could not conquer have already been made subject to Christ. So we're talking within the first couple centuries of Christianity that the gospel has reached the British Isles. I think that's amazing, and we're not sure why. Um, I believe it's, is it Schaff or, or one of the other historians notes no less than 11 theories how the gospel could have reached the, the British Islands that early and, and some actually claim that maybe Peter or Paul made it up there. So we think that's kind of probably didn't happen, but uh, the Celts originally were Gallic or Gauls from Europe and they may have been the same Galatians that Paul wrote to and as as they invaded Roman territory, Rome beat them back and they retreated up to the British Isles so they may have carried the gospel with them. So uh, Celtic Christianity gets a very early start but it's never really finished. There, there's always attacks from outside nations. 
if we take a look at uh, these couple of maps here, if you can see closely enough that there are people groups like the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes, all these people from the mainland continuously attack and move into uh, Britain. And uh, the Rome, the Roman army actually uh, created a Hadrian's Wall, I think sometime in the third century. Way up on the, the map on the right, you see where the Picts are located. Right below where the word Picts is, Hadrian built a wall going from the eastern side of the island completely to the western side, completely segregating Roman territory from the wild barbarians. Uh, so there was still plenty of paganism running around, uh, even though Christianity had its early start. But then um, all these different people groups that are too numerous to get into right now kept coming in, and we'll see even later, where later centuries were Vikings and Danes, those people groups come in and, and attack and nearly wipe out the established Christianity. Uh, and it continues to be a mission field in in the... Middle Ages, so we see um, Roman Brits, uh, colon, not colonized, but evangelizing the I Irish island, and then Irish missionaries coming over to Scotland. So there's there's always movement of missions throughout the islands, and we talked about the invasions of, of several groups. So that brings us to one of our dominant, probably the preeminent. Uh, Celtic Christian of church history, and that is Patrick. We may know him as Saint Patrick. He has his own day, his own holiday. And um, I'm going to put Brad on the spot here and introduce Patrick, and uh, I'll be help, happy to fill in as much as we want. There are uh, disputes as to when he lived. Some have him in the uh, first few decades of the, the fifth century, you know, 400s going all the way up to 497, I believe. Um, but this is the, the most consistent dating that I've seen. Patrick uh, grew up in a Christian home, uh, did not believe, it's certainly not the level that he thought was required to be a Christian when he was a child. And they lived close to the coast on the, on the British Isles, and uh, invaders or pirates essentially from Ireland came over and kidnapped him and took him back. He was made a slave to a very cruel master. Uh, and during that time, Patrick gave his heart to Jesus. And then the Lord allowed him to escape and he made his way back to the British house. Well, not many years after that, God called him to go back to Ireland as a missionary. And you can imagine how that would be a difficult call for most of them, uh, most of us. But by the end of his life, Patrick said that uh, loved the Irish so much that he said we were born in Ireland. You know, he just identified with them, not lying, just identifying that royal we. You know, sort of a, I was born here. I, I, I'm so much a part of the people. It's as if I were I were born here. What do you know? about Patrick. What do you know about his work? Anything? What, what what do you think of when you think of Patrick? St. Patrick's Day. What's you know what uh, there's a particular legend about what he did in Ireland. Drove out 
drove out the snakes. Yes, he drove out all the snakes. I have no idea where that came from. There is uh, some. There are plausible reports about uh, Patrick working miracles in the land. There was a great deal of supernatural the, uh, demonism. Uh, the Druids um, were very. The pagan Druids had a great deal of uh, uh, of power in Ireland, and Patrick was very much all aware that this power was real and that it came from Satan. But he said, there is a greater power. Yeah. I've heard stories that I absolutely believe to be true in Latin America and in Africa where very orthodox, very reformed, or very non-charismatic missionaries have uh, been used by God to do miracles in order to combat some of the demonic activity that's going on in those areas. So I have no trouble believing that Patrick was able to perform miracles and that God used that to bring the gospel. We don't see much of that going on here, and I think one of the reasons is because of the pervasive influence of the Word. But in places, again, where there is a lot of demonic activity and spiritual warfare, you hear reports uh, of, of this coming from people who wouldn't have anticipated it. Uh, Patrick was not a, a, a very educated man. Yes, David? Or because a lot of people don't believe it anymore. That's true. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is that Satan uh, uses different methods in different places. And because of the great education, we start to talk next week about the impact of reasoning in theology and how reason oftentimes takes too prominent a role in theology uh, and, in, and in the church. But this, the age of reason coming on the hills of the Renaissance and the Reformation and, and a, a time where man began to try to figure things out and understand the world and how it works and, and, and man effectively reasoned God right out of existence. In fact, I'll, let me talk about this for just a moment. In, in the late 80s, overnight, it felt like we moved from a modern era to a postmodern era. Now, do anybody want to take a crack at defining those? What is, what is modernism and what is postmodernism? That's a loaded. David, you want to, you want to get the microphone, boy. Good thing you switched tapes. (laughs) (laughs) Just, uh, you know, a, a basic definition of those. Uh, well, those are really broad and somewhat loaded terms. Yes, for they are. And, and, and let me just and say that, that, that there is no clean break, and it's not easy to say well, yeah, this is exactly what modernism is. Yeah, there's definitely no clean break for going into postmodernism. That's part of the point. Yeah. But uh, the modern worldview is is in some ways characterized by the scientific method and the rise of. Empiricism as being a means of gathering information and processing information. So uh, those things which are mystical um, and or mythical in nature were marginalized, um, demythologized. A lot of that was a process of modernism developing and taking hold in so as a worldview, as a way of the people thought about the world. Um, but then after 
that had run its course. Um, in some ways, the like the persistence of um, the idea that there is something beyond what can be empirically proven, and in some ways, just the messiness of uh, globalism and cultures colliding. Um, modernism gave way to post-modernism, and which is really just a kind of a holdover term until history further down the line looks back and gives it a more proper term. Um, because it's not modernism anymore, the, the worldview that, it, and even now we're kind of post, post-modern. So we're almost at a place where we can kind of decide if that's the right term or not. But the globalization and, um, and worldview is continuing to shift even still. But modernism being uh, a way of kind of thinking through things empirically with, uh, with the scientific method being kind of a pinnacle of that. Um, and then postmodernism being a little bit more, uh, willing to deconstruct things and, and put them back together. Postmodernism being a bit, a bit more willing to, um, to say, I don't know, um, and be okay with, um, the things that are, be okay with the things that are mystical, not necessarily like encouraging them again or like returning to that necessarily, but um, but embracing it in a different way than, than what modernism would have marginalized. So modernism uh, is a way of looking at the world in which you must explain everything, and miracles don't fit. Yep. The supernatural doesn't fit because there is an explanation. We can explain everything. We can explain the, our origins, how we came to be. Well, we can't explain why there was a Big Bang, but we do know that there was this cataclysmic event and then over centuries, um, over millennium, um, the development of life. So people said, we have an explanation for everything that we no longer need God. Well, of course, the human soul needs God, as Augustine said, our hearts are restless and they will not rest until they rest in thee. And so this restlessness and the failure of humanistic government structures, communism, when communism failed, if you're going to put a date, if you're going to put dates around modernism, Ravi Zacharias talks about the storming of the Bastille when the humans took over it. We're no longer, we've got, or when the lower man, the common man, is no longer under the thumb of all of this this authority that we're talking about through the Middle Ages. And uh, then 1989, at the fall of the Berlin Wall, which just marked the complete utter failure of communism, which may find another cycle. Uh, those are the dates that... Ravi Zacharias, anyway, would give to modern the modern era, the postmodern era, beginning it, and it did. It, there was an abrupt change in the way that people began to think. It's not as clean as I'm saying that it is, but do you remember all of a sudden, touched by an angel, all these shows about angels and all of this thought about the supernatural. And I used to think, why, when Satan, Satan has been so effective using reason for man to just reason God right out of existence, why would now we get to this era where people do believe in the supernatural? And then over time you begin to see it's bad to not believe in anything. It's worse to believe in everything. And now we've... And that's what people do. You know, they'll believe in everything. And of course, this is a mark of Eastern religion from way back, Hindu especially, they can, any gods, and it, and it all goes back to the Roman, uh, 
era of paganism where, okay, it's fine for you to believe in Jesus. Just believe in all these others as well and worship Caesar. So, um, so how in the world did I get there from, <laughs> from Celtic Christianity? Oh, from, I think from we're going to say we can praise God for people like Patrick who bring Christ into the spiritual battle. How about that? Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. The supernatural world. Well, there's been a lot of, uh, of the world that has, the, the supernatural activity has been very visible. It's gone unabated. Um, one of the things about, and so Patrick wasn't afraid of that. And, and by the way, I think that's one of the reasons that Pentecostals do so well in Latin America and in Africa. They're not afraid of spiritual warfare. Mm. You know, we were talking about this, uh, it was David, were you and I talking about, uh, yesterday, uh, no, Jim, my friends Jimmy and Dave and I were talking about how, uh, the, the views about the spiritual gifts, uh, many people are cessationists. They believe that at, at the end of the apostolic age, the gifts are no longer in play. Others are, uh, saying, others say that they believe that spiritual gifts are in use, but they have to be used biblically. Well, you've got, people on one side of the spectrum saying no more gifts healing never takes place people don't speak in tongues the lord doesn't lead people to speak in tongues then you've got some that are practically wild you know they're running all over the place and and everything is going on we are our position is that we believe the spiritual gifts are in play now certain offices like apostle and prophets in the way they were used in that first century we don't believe are still in use today but for all practical purposes we are we're functional cessationists we don't actually believe this stuff is good i'm never i'm not expecting somebody to stand up in church on sunday morning and speak in tongues if they did the proper response would be wait just a moment is there someone who can interpret this and if so then we have to allow it to go forward but i don't expect that ever you know, I just... That's probably why we will never see it. Well, <laughs> and I saw it and it was very confusing. And I ex- saw it at a friend's church and I was just kind of like... That's uh, probably why most people yeah. in America feel like the supernatural, God's part of the supernatural doesn't work anymore because we don't believe in it. Hmm. Well, there's, I, I think part of the... And part of the reason for that is there's been such an abuse of the gifts that we're, you know, we start to move away from the edge and we say, you know, we just want to be careful. And so lines get drawn uh, further and further back. The lines got drawn all throughout the Bible. In uh, Samuel's time, God had stopped talking. In Moses, in Samuel's time, God had stopped talking. In Moses' time, God had stopped talking. In Jesus' time, God had stopped talking. So we're constantly throughout history, something big happens and then things settle down. Well, God's finished talking and he's not. No, that's true. Um, our understanding of God giving new truth, though, is that it ended with the apostles. Uh, and one of the heresies that we talk about. And where in the Bible is that? Revelation. Hebrews 1. 
You know, this this brings up an interesting point. Point. Um, it's important that we think not only biblically, but theologically. Um, this this phrase, the, we have no creed but the Bible, is a phrase that almost all cults use. If you cannot begin to say, okay, this is what we believe the Bible teaches about God. This is how we see the Trinity. This is how we understand what Scripture is saying. We begin to codify our beliefs into statements of faith where we can say, because you can, uh, you can use Scripture, you can take any verse out of Scripture and say, well, this is what Scripture teaches. Well, we have to understand that in the larger context of all that's being said in Scripture. So what is the authority? Scripture or our traditions around Scripture? The authority I is... I say that's in, pretty much the way the, the answer the Pharisees would have given you too. And that's a question that uh, the church wrestles with through the centuries is how much tradition do we mix in with the authority of Scripture? Is it the same authority? And, and that's what we see through the development of the early church and then the imperial church and, and now the Catholic church is elevating what, what man says to the, to the state of, of Scripture. And uh, I'm just going to bring it back to the Celtic Christianity is that one of the marks of of Patrick is that he was very orthodox. He grew up in a Christian home, um, did not embrace Jesus until life got bad, that he started praying every multiple times every day. And then he had a, a call to missions. But if you're spiritual in those days, remember this is the time of Jerome, time of Augustine. These are uh, very um, trying times where people go out to the desert and become monks, right? So if you're spiritual, what do you do? You go to the monastery. You don't become a missionary. And Thomas Cahill even uh, sort of uses a little bit of hyperbole and says between Paul and Patrick, there were no missions. So here we see Patrick being called back to the people of his captors, those who pretty much ruined his life. From a human perspective, we could say that. But from God's perspective, uh, he gives him a, a vision, a calling, uh, and he did not rest from that calling until he went to the Irish and, and evangelized. And um, you see there on the, the lower portion of the picture of Patrick, the, the clover. And we think of Patrick, we think of four-leaf clovers, but here the three-leaf clover. And we're not very sure how much is legend and how much is truth, but he very well could have used the imagery of the three-leaf clover to teach the truth of the Trinity to the Irish. And that's the, a lasting mark. And one of the things that I wanted to uh, bring out about this is that Patrick was not a theologian at the same level mm. that other people were. Um, in this book, Christian History, I read the poem, uh, the prayer the other day from it. A couple of paragraphs says, Over and over again, Patrick wrote that he was not worthy to be a bishop. He wasn't the only one with doubts. At one point, his ecclesiastical elders in Britain sent a deputation to investigate his mission. A number of concerns were brought up, including a rash moment of unspecified sin from his youth. His confession, in fact, was written in response to this investigation. Reeling from accusations, Patrick drew strength from God. Indeed, he bore me up, though I was trampled underfoot in such a way. For although I was put down and shamed... Not too much harm came to me. And I just thought about how wonderful it is that God uses people that don't 
study at the level that others are able to. Patrick, in fact, is one of the most memorable figures in all of church history. And yet, here he was being called to task by this group of bishops from, from Britain. And that leads us to uh, the second of our Celtic missionaries, probably less known, and that is Columba. And that's not a typo. It's not Columbus that we think of, uh, even though there's another person, Columbanus, who's even a third person. We may get confused. But uh, this one, uh, roughly a 100 years after Patrick. And uh, there's three waves of Celtic Christianity that, that I think about. There's Patrick, and then a 100 years later, there's Columba. And then about a hundred years later, there's invasion by the Vikings that nearly wipe out the Christian established um, there on the British Isles. But what Columba did uh, was that he modeled his missions. Now, Patrick was a Brit who evangelized the Irish, and Columba was an Irishman who evangelized the Scots, the Scots and the Picts. So what he did is he established a monastery on one of many on the island on the west coast of, of Britain called Iona. And the model that he used is he used Christ and the twelve disciples. So it was Columba and twelve other monks who went with him, and they evangelized the Picts and the Scots. And again, uh, very orthodox, they relied on Scripture more so than um, Roman church tradition. And, and that sort of partially answers uh, a question that we had earlier, is uh, the Celtic Christianity was geographically removed from the Roman church and the the early evangelism of the islands were also removed from the ongoing developing tradition of the Roman church. So they spent more time relying on Scripture even though they, they still had their hang-ups along the way. Um, very monastic, um, which we'll see. And these are a couple of other notable church Celts Columbanus, who was a couple of years, I'm sorry, a couple of centuries after Columba. And he went actually to the continental mainland to the north of France in order to evangelize. And John Dunn Scotus, who we'll talk, we'll probably mention again next week when we look at um, scholasticism as he was later, even post crusades, he's uh, among those scholastics. So this is going to move us to a point where we talk about some of the distinct, distinguishing marks or influences of Celtic Christianity. And the first point there, if, if the first word of the sentence didn't have to be capitalized, we could say that's Catholic with a small c, that they are very much orthodox in respect to um, Catholic ecumenical orthodox Christianity. Uh, very Trinitarian, as we noted with Patrick. Um, the prayer that that Brad read Sunday was very uh, Trinitarian, is looking to Christ to be with Him. And uh, not only are they theologically orthodox, but they are very not Roman. There are some controversies that when Gregory sends Augustine, who later becomes Archbishop of Canterbury, this is not Augustine of Hippo, this is uh, a later one, they, in, in his 300 monks, they bring a source of tradition that come to odds with, with Celtic Christianity. And one of those is the very silly picture that you see at the bottom of that slide. Um, the Roman monks had a haircut that distinguished them as, it's called a tonsure. If you see any 
um, you know, Robin Hood movies, Friar Tuck always has this, this ring of hair around him. Or if you see the Luther movie, that's, this is the haircut that he has. But the, the Celtic monks instead would have a partial ring, a semicircle around the, the front of their head, would shave the top and then let the back grow long. It seems very trivial to us. Uh, but it was a, a source of contention between the new coming Roman tradition and the already established uh, individual minded. Um, you know, the, the Celts had a very hardy uh, tradition and, and heart for their own uh, sense of, of culture, and they wanted to maintain their culture as opposed to adopting the Roman. However, um, they were adherence to Scripture. So when the question came up, okay, who's in charge of the church? Is it the abbots? Because they were heavily influenced by the monasteries and the leaders of the monasteries who are the abbots. Or is it the pope? They didn't really care about the pope. It was a a church far away. They had no very little bearing on them. But then through the centuries, the question came, okay, we've got these Roman monks, we've got these Celtic monks, and they're arguing about Easter, they're arguing about... um, authority of the church, who's right? And then the que- and the response was, well, Scripture says Jesus gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. And the, the king turns to his Celtic monks and says, is this true? And they say, well, yes. And, you know, he, in, a, in essence, um, wraps the gavel and says, okay, that's it. We're going to submit to the Pope as, as head of the church. So uh, they were very Orthodox and also very mission-minded. You see with Patrick, not only staying in a monastery, but actually leaving and evangelizing the, the kings of those tribes because he thought if he can evangelize the kings, then the people would naturally follow. And, and then there's missionaries that are subsequent to him. And we talked about them being very monastic and ascetic. Not only were they um, would they gather in monasteries, but they would lead rigorous lives of, of discipline and over the centuries, that would also creep in notions of, of penance. And um, there were actually rule books created within the monasteries of which sin uh, equaled what punishment in order to regain that, that spiritual uh, connection with, with God and the community. Is anyone going to add a question? I think it's one of the instances where or it can be one where a good thing becomes a God thing mm-hmm. and that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And so in, in the endeavor to establish discipline and to protect, in a lot of senses, one of my favorite historical fiction novels is a story of uh, a character who takes um, a carefully crafted and preserved copy of the biblical text to the church at Byzantium, mm-hmm. starting in, um, in Wales. And so that journey... All the way across Europe, um, but like the in in reading that, you get a sense for the good ways that discipline helped form spirituality for this character. But um, he encounters other characters on the way who um, are you know believers in in word but not in deed, in the way that he's treated or that um, when they find out that he's carrying the text and those kinds of things. So um, in those in those monastic environments where discipline is lifted up, um, if it's lifted up equal with Jesus, that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that and that can happen 
for them as, as easily as it can for us um, and any of the practices that we um, would lift up if we lift it up uh, in any way higher than or equal to Jesus then we entered into a dangerous place. In fact, much much of what's gone wrong in the church started off with the right intent, right motives, right practices. Just kind of gradually. And we find that in our individual lives too, that we must always come back to Scripture, otherwise our good intentions, quote unquote, will lead us astray because they are not attached to Christ. Um, are, are there any other questions about Celtic Christianity, some of the Traditions or culture. When Thomas Cahill entitled his book "How the Irish Saved Civilization," we can ask ourselves: Saved? He said he didn't say shaved. <laughs> saved <laughs> civilization. Uh, how would we answer that? I mean, that's that's still kind of a tough question, just with the, the little overview that we've done. Uh, and it's not so clear to me, also, uh, although that they have a very key place in church history. Uh, I would say that probably through two massive uh, assaults on the church, they end up playing a key role in preserving Scripture in, in many of the religious books. First, with the, the Gothic invasion and the fall of the Roman Empire, which plunged us into these dark ages, a lot of literature was lost, including copies of, of Scripture where they went into, um, not cathedrals, but churches and monasteries and would, would burn all the literature that they have. And then again, when the Muslims started invading, they were just wiping over North Africa, uh, they would you know, do away with marks of Christianity. But here we have a geographically removed church in the British Isles, and within the monasteries they were able to scribal and copy Scripture and commentaries and confessions as in those books like Augustine and Patrick and, and maintain a literary history for us that otherwise we may not have access to. Any other questions or comments on Celtic Christianity? Okay, just a note for next time. Uh, these are our final three weeks. It's hard to believe, I know, but... Uh, we can always look forward to next year when we're going to pick up with the Reformation. And I know Reformation is on our minds now as we turn to what everyone else in culture and society is looking to Halloween. We can actually celebrate Reformation Day that um, we, we can see Martin Luther as an emblem of the church returning to its gospel roots. Uh, so if you have any questions about what Reformation Day is, what it means... I'm going to point you to Brad. No, we're we're, happy we're, to help this you out. one date you're supposed to remember. We should ask it every time. Okay. October thirty-first, fifteen. Anybody? Seventeen. I didn't give you any time. I didn't want that awkward silence, you know, for ten seconds. Neil said, "Wait for more than 10. So um, it is indeed a day that informs the way we live, the way we worship, the way that we understand Scripture. Um, and it's returning to the understanding that the early church had about Scripture. So wrap it up, Neil, and, and anything that you want to talk about that you've learned in this class, the most significant thing, we'll do that off camera, but we need to 
And those who are tracking on uh, track two or level two and who want to do um, their project, um, be prepared on the 20th. We'll do presentations then. If you want to shift something um, a little bit later or do something a little different, let us know as, as early as you can so we can prepare for that. And then um, I'm going to turn off my microphone for this, but as we close, one of the um, mainstays, one of the legacies of Celtic Christianity is their music, uh, how their lyrics were very uh, orthodox but would bring in the majesty of creation in order to lift up the name of God. So if you're willing and able, would you join me in singing Be Thou My Vision, which is a tune in the lyrics come from an Irish prayer. <laughs>